All right. So we have, uh, I'm going to call first the case of Karnofsky, State of Washington versus Donald Trump, case number 18-35347. Each side has 20 minutes. And as we discussed previously on the appellee's side, they wanted to have a 17-minute and three split, correct? All right. So we're ready for the appellant's counsel to begin. Still good morning. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court, Brinton Lucas for the United States. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Okay. In March of this year, the Secretary of Defense announced a new policy presumptively disqualifying individuals with a medical condition of gender dysphoria from military service. That policy, which rested on the Secretary's professional military judgment and a panel of senior military officials who had intensely studied the issue, is entirely constitutional, as reflected by the fact that the same policy the District Court ordered us to maintain also presumptively disqualifies individuals on the basis of the medical condition of gender dysphoria, but subject to different exceptions. Now, Your Honors, before I go through the military's precise reasoning for this particular policy, I would just like to stress that the military sets very, very cautious accession standards, the standards that one must meet to come into the military. And to, as reflected by this fact, 71 percent of Americans of the prime military age, ages 17 to 24, cannot come into the military without a waiver under these standards. And so these standards cover a whole host of conditions, ranging from a history of food allergies to eczema to carpal tunnel syndrome to plantar fasciitis to a whole range of various different degrees. And that does not mean that any American who cannot satisfy these incredibly cautious standards is stigmatized or looked down upon by the military. Now, turning to the military's actual reasons for its particular policy, I'd like to point to three. First, military readiness. On that front, the 2018 policy ensures both psychological fitness and maximum deployability. With respect to psychological fitness, it's undisputed that individuals with gender dysphoria, even those who have undergone gender transition, are still at a higher risk of uh, psychological hospitalization or suicidal behavior. And that's reflected in the military's data that shows that eight times, that service members with gender dysphoria are eight times more likely to engage in suicidal behavior and nine times more likely to go have mental health visits than a service member without gender dysphoria. Now, the military, given this data, was particularly concerned about subjecting these individuals to the unique stresses of the military environment. And the military explained its reasoning. I can point you to the lengthy discussion on ER 187 about the particular risks of military service and why it was concerned about subjecting let these me, Let me just ask you something, and I'm, I, we can come back to this, but let's sort of get the posture of the case here because um, you're talking about the 2018 policy, which is what there was – there was first what was there was the tweet, then there was the 2017, and but here you're asking for this court to vacate the preliminary injunction in light of the 2018 policy. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. All right, because 
there was a previous, the previous was as to the, what was called, I guess has been called the ban. The previous injunction was with respect to the President's 2017 memorandum. Yes. Yes. And so that memorandum was withdrawn and the government dropped its appeal of that. So here, you're asking to have that vacated and the trial on the 2018 policy is, I think, is set in April, right? Yes, Your Honor. So in order to have that vacated, so that you're, we're not talking about, we're not talking about whether the appeal was right. You're not taking the appeal on the 2017. So what the, what the judge did here is my understanding is the judge essentially said, well, we, I'm, I think the 2018 is just an extension of what the ban was before. So I'm going to leave the injunction in place. So what do you have to show? So it's not, do we have to believe on the record that is before us that your 2018 policy is going to be held constitutional in that trial, which there hasn't been that determination yet, correct? No, Your Honor. So what do you have to show in order for us to vacate the preliminary injunction that is currently in place pending the trial on the 2018? Certainly, Your Honor, I'd like to make three points. First of all, we saw the injunction that the district court entered in April 2018 of this year to be not only a refusal to dissolve the injunction of the 2017 policy, but also an extension of that injunction to cover an entirely new policy. Secondly, Your Honor, with respect to the district court's conclusion that this is not a new policy, we respectfully disagree, and we are certainly allowed to appeal that determination. I don't think plaintiffs nor Washington have ever suggested to the contrary. And third, Your Honor, even if Well, I agree you can appeal, but in order to prevail, what is your burden it's different than if, if you were, we were just taking an appeal. What, what, do you have the burden to show that it, that the district court was wrong when the district court said that the 2018 was just the same as the 2017? And if you show that, does that automatically, are you automatically entitled to relief? I mean, what do we have to determine to see it your way? Sure. So I think it depends first on how you resolve a predicate question of whether you view the district court's April 2018 ruling as an extension of the injunction or simply a refusal to dissolve. If it's an extension of the injunction, then it's a new injunction and would be treated like the PI, a normal PI appeal. If it's just a refusal to dissolve, then we have to show that there has been a change. And I would point you to two things that changed. First, we think that there has been a truly significant change between the military's 2018 policy and the policy set forth in the President's 2017 memorandum. But, Your Honor, even if you don't agree with us on that, this fact remains that the 2018 policy, even if you think it's exactly the same as the President's 2017 policy, rests on an exhaustive study by military officials, and we think that fact should be considered, and that alone is a significant change in circumstances, especially because the district court's original 2017 opinion rested on the fact that she saw no evidence of military support or deliberation for the President's 2017 policy. So in that um, preliminary injunction, the district court said did not give any deference to the military. Is that correct? No, Your Honor, it did not. Okay, based on the 2017 
So you're saying because the 2018 is different and there's the report and all of that, that there has to be some deference, not we don't know what the answer to that is. Yes, Your Honor, we would say, A, because it's a new policy, and B, because of the military study, it is entitled to significant deference, and we would, you know, encourage you to apply the standard military deference principles set forth by the Supreme Court in cases such as Rosker or Goldberg. Well, in order for you to prevail, do we — the record isn't — obviously, there's — we also have a discovery dispute that's separate from this as well, but we have to uh, — do we have to be convinced that there's a likelihood that the 2018 is constitutional in order for you to prevail on this? Or of all of the risks associated with gender dysphoria, it would still limit the amount of time service members could deploy. And that's undisputed, Your Honor. It's undisputed that the Department of Defense has a standard that each service member should be deployable for the least amount of time, should be limited in deployability for the least amount of time as possible, and that individuals undergoing gender transition are limited in their deployability. I'd point you to one statistic on ER-196, where among the service members who are transitioning at the military study, they were approximately uh, 45 percent of their year was on limited duty. So this does impose a burden on deployability. Well, let me ask you, okay, if a woman's pregnant and she wants to, what do you call it, um, a session, mm-hmm. if she wants to enlist, or is, will she be taken if she's pregnant? Your Honor, there is a bar on pregnancy. She can come in, but she has to wait, I believe it's either six or eight months until after the pregnancy is complete. <laughs> But if she's pregnant and wants to come in right then, she can't come in right then. No, Your Honor. All right. Now, uh, Judge Peckman said as part of all of this that transgenders are a suspect class and they're in t- and that they, the standard of review would be strict scrutiny. Is that correct? And that the government is not entitled to any deference in this situation. Is that correct? That's what we understood. The district court did leave open the possibility that some military deference principles would apply, but it was strongly emphatic that strict scrutiny would be the standard, and I don't really see how, given the district court's reasoning, that there would be much deference shown at all. Well, if, all right, so, all right, suspects classes as they exist currently under the law, race would be a suspect class, right? Yes, Your Honor. What about women? Your Honor, no, they would be uh, governed by the intermediate scrutiny standard, and so they would be treated under intermediate scrutiny. But even so, how is a transgender different than a woman? Why? What? What is the? What was the logic for why a transgender would get higher, uh, a higher level of scrutiny than a woman would? I'm not sure why Judge Peckman elevated the classification of transgender over gender classifications themselves. I think she just applied the four factors and concluded that would be it, but she didn't grapple with that particular issue of why it was anomalous to have transgender classifications getting more constitutional protection than gender classifications themselves. But moving on to so the next bucket of military... Oh, Your Honor... What would be your irreparable harm if this injunction is left in place, as opposed to... Because right now, what is the Carter program going on right now? Because 2017 was withdrawn, right? 
Yes, Your Honor. And so the 2018, you're waiting to put in, but it's been enjoined because the ban turned into enjoining this. So what's your harm? What's your irreparable harm? Your Honor, I'd like to answer that. I see I'm cutting into my rebuttal time. May I have leave to answer the question? Yes. How much time did you say you wanted to say? Five minutes, Your Honor. Well, I'll give you five because we want to have our questions answered. I want to have my questions answered. Certainly, Your Honor. So the irreparable injury was set forth, I think, very clearly by both the Secretary of Defense and the military's report. It explained that continuing the Carter policy poses a risk to military readiness, and that's why we have been so urgent in trying to get out from underneath these injunctions and are seeking this Court's relief. The Secretary of Defense and his panel of senior military officials believes that maintaining the Carter policy, based on their study of how this policy was playing out on the ground, actually has a negative impact on military readiness and hence the national defense. So we consider that a significant irreparable injury, and we don't think the district court really grappled with that concern. How many people are we talking about? I mean, you've indicated it's a small number. I've read so much, I don't know that I've ever read something that tells us how many people we think we're talking about. Certainly, Your Honor. So based on one study, the military estimates that it has about 8,970 transgender service members. And I'd like to highlight for the fact, Your Honor, that 937 of those individuals got a gender dysphoria diagnosis while the Carter policy was in place. So those individuals are fully protected by the 2018 policy. They can continue to serve, and they can continue to serve in their preferred gender. And for the remaining 8,000-plus individuals, based on this one particular estimate, they can continue to serve exactly as they are currently serving before. And so the concern is, Your Honor, with respect to new individuals coming in, really the accessions policy is a major concern for the military because, as I started my argument out, the military sets incredibly demanding accession standards because it wants people to come in and be ready to deploy on day one and serve and not have any limitations. And those accession standards exclude 71% of the prime military-aged U.S. population. And so really the key issue for the military here is the accessions policy. And I will reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. How many people... Wait, Judge Fischer asked a question. How many people, then, are trying to come in to answer Judge Clifton's question? You say irreparable injury. How many people are allowed to come in that you would keep up? Your Honor, I don't know the precise statistics. There have been at least a number who have come in under the particular injunctions. I don't know off the top of my head exactly what that number is. But I would stress, in addition to the accessions, there is also the concern going forward of just maintaining this policy in as a general form that the military is concerned about. And so I apologize I cannot give you a precise number. There are some, and the military is concerned that these individuals cannot deploy on day one. And I would stress you to the portion of the Department's report where it talks about looking at aggregate numbers is the wrong standard for military service because the military has to consider how each individual in a particular unit will serve and how they will affect 
that particular military operation because there's all sorts of conditions your honor that affect only a very very tiny portion of the population and only a very tiny portion of that population would we want to serve but that doesn't mean that the military needs to take these individuals in or that if they took that individuals it would not be irreparably harmed thank you good afternoon May it please the Court, Steve Patton on behalf of the plaintiffs. The district court's denial of the government's motion to dissolve should be affirmed for two reasons. First of all, the government has not satisfied its very clear burden of showing either that its purported new policy is significantly different from the ban that the district court enjoined or that the district court abused its discretion and committed clear error in making the highly fact-bound decision that it is not and that the new policy simply implements the prior ban. Well, but there are differences. Those are some of the things that... It's not different at all, Your Honor. It's not the same. It's not the same. With one exception, it is exactly the same, has the same effect. And I would urge, Your Honor, to simply compare the President's August 25, 2017 memorandum with the Mattis February 22, 2018 memorandum. And what you'll see, the President said you've got to reinstitute the prior policy of no open service. And he directed three specific, he called them directives. He didn't ask them whether there should be a ban. He said implement it. The first one was exactly that. As to retention, put in the old policy, which is no open service. And that's exactly what the Mattis memorandum does. As to accessions, he ordered continue to bar transgender persons from joining the military. And that, too, is what the Mattis memorandum does. It does that by barring anyone who has transitioned or who seeks or needs to transition. And as to anyone else, they can only serve if they serve in their birth assigned sex. They call that an exception. It's an exception that implements exactly the ban that existed before. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not about gender dysphoria. That is lipstick on a pig here. Ladies and gentlemen? I'm sorry, Your Honor. We have one lady and two gentlemen. Lady and gentlemen. We don't usually get addressed that way. No, I know. This has nothing to do with gender dysphoria. This policy bans a transgender person, whether they've had gender dysphoria or not. And as Your Honor perceptively noted, even if, and by the way, the medical consensus is uniform, gender dysphoria is a treatable condition. It can be resolved. This policy bans folks, even when they have recovered from gender dysphoria and have been stable in their true gender. This is not about gender dysphoria. It exactly has the same effects. The only exception is a one-time exception, a grandfather exception, for those transgender persons who came out during the open service policy. And that, too, was as directed by Trump's August 25th memorandum. He said, I want you to study. I guess I'm not completely convinced by your argument that the 2018 is the same as the 2017. I mean, I can see differences. I've got all these flow charts, and I can see differences. And the judge said she just saw it as a continuation. 
I'm not giving any military deference. And there is on the 2018, there's a report that it would seem, I don't know what level of deference, but she also says that they're a suspect class, they're subject to strict scrutiny, and the military gets no deference. And I'm concerned with what I consider maybe legal errors. I don't know all the answers to that. And they don't look exactly the same to me. So we're looking at a highly fact-bound decision as to whether there is something so significant and new and changed here that it required the dissolution of the prior injunction. Well, I know she had to do it fast because the other one was withdrawn. But I thought... Your Honor, she didn't have to do it fast. It seemed to be quite conclusory. Well, and it wasn't conclusory. It just said this is the same thing. No. And I can't see that it's the same thing. I think that fairly read, her decision carefully looked at it. I know that we had extensive briefing on that issue and argument on that issue. And she made a fact-bound decision that this wasn't significantly new. And I again would urge you to look at the effect, and we described this in a brief, of the new policy. It affects each of the three directives that President Trump ordered. And the proof of the pudding is in the eating. If this policy were implemented, the only way a transgender person could serve, apart from that limited one-time exception, is if they serve, as they did before the Carter Open Service Policy, in their birth assigned sex. And you read his memorandum, that's exactly what it accomplishes. It's not about gender dysphoria. So the burden is on them. They haven't met that burden. It's a fact-bound decision. And there are ample undisputed facts in the record which establish that this was simply the implementation of the ban that President Trump ordered. And the chronology... Let's look at what happened in the travel ban case, which I'm sure everybody here is conscious of. There was a preliminary injunction, or something characterized as a preliminary injunction, that was upheld. Ultimately, the administration issued two subsequent versions of that. By the time the Supreme Court finally got around to ruling on it, it paid attention and put great weight on what had happened in between. And certainly it heard lots of arguments that it was all the same thing, had all the same motivations, but paid deciding attention to the fact that there was a different justification offered in support of the policy. So by the time that Trump versus Hawaii came out, the past history was in the past. It may have influenced the decision, but it didn't end the inquiry. And now we have a potentially analogous situation. You can say all you want about what happened in 2017, but by the time the policy that the government now wants to implement is on the table, it's offered with different support. And that's not something the district court seemed to speak to very much. Well, I would respectfully disagree, but there are three fundamental differences between this case and the Trump travel ban. Number one, the policy that was ultimately ruled upon by the Supreme Court was significantly different than the initial policy you looked at in the Washington case and the second policy. But more fundamentally, as it was ultimately articulated and ruled upon by the Supreme Court, it was neutral on its face. We don't have a neutral. We have a policy, whether you consider it new or old, 
that is discriminatory on its face and targets a minority group. And third, this is clearly, under well-settled jurisprudence, subject to heightened scrutiny. The neutral policy that was at issue in Trump was subject to rational basis review. You're not speaking to the question I've raised, though, which is what attention should the court be paying to the justification being offered for the revised policy? I can understand the distinctions you're drawing, but none of it tells me that we're not going to pay attention to this new policy because we view it as simply an extension of the same old thing. That's not what the Supreme Court did. Well, I'm telling you that it was in a very different context. It wasn't a claim where heightened scrutiny applied because it was a facially discriminatory policy. But we have to deal with, there is the question of deference to the military, which the judge here said, I am giving no deference. She didn't say that. There's nothing in her decision. She said, well. No, what she did find is that the fact that there may be military deference does not change the standard of review. This is still a heightened scrutiny case. And that's the same thing this court held in wit with the don't ask, don't tell. Well, why is, all right, but why is, if, why is transgender suspect and women are quasi suspect? Her ruling is, well, because she went through the four factors. Because if we're talking about gender. Well, but we're talking about something different. We're talking about the four factors that define suspect class include a group that continues to be subject to, you know, gross discrimination. They're politically powerless. Well, women claimed all of those things. Not according to the Supreme Court. They've applied an intermediate level of scrutiny. But whether the court, whether you apply strict scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny, the government loses here. They concede that tacitly. They don't even argue that this new ban passes heightened scrutiny. They claim that there's something quasi akin to rational basis review. And that's why they can win. So the court did not address the question of military deference. We're not here on a summary judgment disposition. We haven't even had discovery of what was really going on behind the black curtain when all this happened. What we have is a policy that if you look at the original iteration or the maddest iteration is discriminatory on its face and therefore fundamentally different than what the court looked at in the Trump case. It is subject to heightened scrutiny. And even if you were to find it is new, and I think that the If I agree that if I disagree with you that it's not the same. Then they still lose because even the new policy still fails heightened scrutiny. And their only argument, they don't cite a single case that says So to leave this in place, I have to, I can disagree with you that it's a new policy. But I would have to apply heightened scrutiny in order for this to stay in place. Well, but I'll get to it in a minute. Even if you applied rational basis, they would still lose. But yes, there are two or Well, at some point There are two or three ways that you can affirm this decision. The first is to find that they didn't meet their burden and the court didn't make a clearly erroneous ruling in saying that this wasn't so significantly new and different that it required dissolving the prior injunction. I think the record is compelling on that. Every other court that's looked at it, and there have been two, precise record has reached that exact holding. But if you disagree with that, we still win 
because the new policy is on its face discriminatory as to transgender persons and is subject to heightened scrutiny. They don't even contend it can pass heightened scrutiny. They claim because it's a military decision that even though no case has ever held this, that is somehow uh, subject to what they say is, quote, akin to rational basis review. Even the case that they principally rely on, Rosker, rejects that and says just because it's a military doesn't change the uh, level of scrutiny it applies. But this Court's decision in Witt uh, fully and conclusively resolved that, and it's been settled law for, what, 15 or 20 years now, that the fact that it's the military and that there is a role, there will be as we go forward for military deference, the Court didn't say there isn't. She just said the military deference doesn't require a different standard of review. That was the issue before her. We're did not she, resolving the facts give, here. Did she give any deference to the – did she consider any deference to the, the 44-page report? It did not – um, it, I didn't see her wrestle with that. Well, because it really was not properly before her. And as to the report, um, we would respectfully uh, well, why s- submit would it have that the court before her if they said it's a twenty that because well the report was the report was before her, but she found that there wasn't a significant change, and also. The, we could disagree about the report. It's clear that it's post-litigation and it's post-hoc, and it is barred by the Supreme Court's decision in U.S. versus Virginia. But even if it's not, what role the report has, whether it's entitled to military deference, to what degree, those are fact issues that we haven't even had discovery on that are to be determined by the court after a trial. We're talking about whether the oh, government it- met its burden of showing such a significant change that it would warrant dissolving the prior injunction or alternatively whether even if this was new it could pass heightened scrutiny and it and and it can't and i guess your honor i would like to conclude and segue that even if um uh rational basis review applied here this is uniquely a case that based on the record here would fail even rational basis review for two reasons. The government only relies on hypothetical risk and concerns. You look at that report, even the jump site single but like, page. I guess what I, if, if I don't think that the judge looked at the 2018, just said, okay, it's just, this is all the same thing and didn't actually consider the 2018. That, that's not st- what she did, Your Honor. She looked at the record. Well, assume if I don't agree with you on that. I, and, and we still win for the reason I mentioned. I'm about to give you yet another reason why we would win. But we would win because the new policy, quote, new policy, would still be subject to heightened scrutiny. It doesn't pass it. They don't even contend that it passes it. But then you just said a couple of minutes ago that we don't even know what the discovery, we don't even know what it's going to be at the trial, we don't even know if it's entitled to any deference. So how can I say, based on the record that I have before me, that it either is constitutional or it's not constitutional? Because the level of scrutiny is clear. That's a legal issue for this Court to decide. And the law is clear. And this Court's prior decision and wit was uh, was a military case. Um, controls here, as does other authority, that requires that this court apply heightened scrutiny. So for purposes of preliminary injunction, the issue was what level of scrutiny applies. You apply that level of scrutiny to this policy and it fails. 
And that's a second independent ground for affirming the trial court. The third reason why, or the third belt, tight pants and suspenders. What's your irreparable damage? Our irreparable damage is that for these young men and women that want to join the military, they cannot. For those that are currently serving under this policy, they can only serve with the scarlet A around their neck because they have been branded as, quote, unfit and as a danger to the fellow service members. And under Heckler v. Matthews, what we have here is terrible stigmatization of a minority group coupled with unequal treatment. Under the new ban, the only way that a few can serve, those, you know, this relatively small group that is grandfathered, is if they serve as second-class citizens and pursuant to an exception that applies only to them. That's unequal treatment. That is just standard injury and irreparable injury. And, of course, the first answer to that — Is the argument about irreparable injury, is that limited to the plaintiffs or are you extending to other people? No. I'm limiting it to the plaintiffs. This irreparably harms all kinds of people, but the folks that are before the Court that have Article III standing to raise irreparable harm are these plaintiffs. And in each and every case, irreparably harmed. The denial of constitutional rights alone and the likelihood that there is a denial would provide irreparable harm. So there shouldn't be any question about irreparable harm. If the Court were to reexamine probability of success in the merits, it should affirm the district court because we still win under heightened scrutiny. And the final point I'd like to make as a last point is even if rational basis applied, the only actual evidence of the effect of this ban of the open service, which has been in effect about two years now and the accession has been in effect about 10 months, is the testimony of the government's own four service chiefs. We're talking about the heads of the four branches of the military testified a few months ago before Congress that they have been carefully monitoring this and they're aware of no adverse effects. And the final point I would make, Your Honors, is and the Romer Supreme Court case gets into this, that this ban and the new policy strikes so broadly that it fails even rational basis because there is no connection between the governmental interests they claim and the ban of all transgender troops. Let me just give two examples. Others are in our brief. Counsel mentioned, well, deployability. You are over your time, so go ahead. Let me give this one response. Well, some transgender people, the military or the government says, when they transition, they may require surgery and they may be non-deployable for as long as two and two and a half years. All right? And that, they cite as a reason for excluding all transgender persons. Well, in fact, the government has a rule, the military was, if you're not deployable for a year or more, it doesn't matter if you're transgender or non-transgender, you're subject to discharge. They don't purport to show that a rule that applies uniformly to all service members wouldn't advance and protect these same interests. One last example, we'll rely on our brief for the rest, is they cite a heightened risk of suicidality or suicide. Actually, if you look at the site, it's suicidal ideation and mental health problems. Well, the fact of the matter is, every person that joins the military, whether they're transgender or non-transgender, has to go through rigorous screening. We heard about this. Well, what's some of that rigorous screening? If you've ever attempted suicide, you're out. 
you can't access in the military. If you have had histories of these same mental problems that they cite as a reason to exclude all transgenders, you can't get in in the first place. And this suggestion that underlies the government's argument that somehow we're creating special treatment for transgender persons is categorically false. The Carter policy requires that each okay, and every, bring it, bring it together. each You're and every one of these individuals has to, cite, has to comply with every aspect of fitness to get in. All they're asking for is not to be excluded because of their uh, status in a class that has nothing to do with their fitness or ability to serve. We ask that you affirm the district court's ruling. Okay, thank you. Th thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. My I think name we're is. Good afternoon now. Is it afternoon? Yeah. Time flies. <laughs> I'm having fun. fun. Yes. <laughs> Uh, my name is Laron Baker. I'm an assistant attorney general for the state of Washington. Washington intervened in this matter to assert its interest in protecting the rights of transgender Washingtonians and to protect its own quasi-sovereign and sovereign interest rights that are implicated by the ban. Uh, this, and we join the Karnofsky plaintiffs in urging this court to reje reject defendant's request to dissolve the preliminary injunction, which the district court initially issued under an intermediate scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny standard. This is necessary to protect Washington's sovereign and quasi-sovereign interest for three reasons. Oh, I thought it was under strict scrutiny. The initial, the preliminary injunction when the district court initially issued it, uh, she issued it under intermediate scrutiny uh, after finding that transgender individuals uh, were quasi-suspect now either the new or the extension is uh, now is, under strict? It is one injunction. Uh, there is no new injunction. Defendants attempt to characterize uh, the, the district court's denial of the request to dissolve the di dissolve the injunction as a new preliminary injunction. However, there has just been one preliminary injunction that's been in place from the initial issuance. Um, that, that preliminary injunction enjoined defendants from changing its policies and practices uh, towards transgender military service members from anything other than what was in existence prior to President Trump's tweet of his new policy directive to bar transgender individuals and to return the military to discriminatory treatment of transgender individuals. The preliminary injunction is one injunction that began uh, when the district court issued her initial order. Are you suggesting we should be looking at the tweet since Trump v. the Hawaii case seemed to say, well, we don't care what the president tweets. Let's look at what, what, what the what they, what the 2018 is. And, and the Hawaii case and this case are, are, are very different. Uh, in the Hawaii case, there were revocations of policies and reissuance, and there plaintiffs relied upon a, a taint argument here. The, the facts really underlie the, the, the truth in the matter, well, which but, is the 2018 but the, policy. But the, but the 2017 was revoked, and Judge Peckman said that this 2018 is really an extension of the 2017. Well, the it's the 20, same thing. Your Honor, the 2017 uh, presidential memorandum directed defendants to create an implementation plan, and, and it provided a timeline for which it was to do so. Uh, and the president directed Secretary Mattis to provide him with a new policy that would allow for transgender individuals to be excluded from the military. And de the defendants 
obliged. They followed the directive of their commander-in-chief to the T, followed the timeline and produced the product. And that is what the 2018 implementation plan is. Well, I guess would there be any program that the government could come up with except for there's no limitation on transgender accession, transgender retention, transgender surgery, all of those things. Is there any policy that they can come up with that, in your view, meet constitutional scrutiny? Your Honor, in the abstract, it's very difficult to answer that. If the military engaged in a process that resembled traditional military contemplation of changes in policy. But I guess what I'm understanding is, and I heard the other argument, is that there is no program they could come up with unless it's open accession, you know, covered medical, and regardless of at what stage that people are serving in the sex that they identify with, and that that would be the only thing that would meet constitutional scrutiny. And I just want to find out if that's your position. Our position is that heightened scrutiny applies to any policy that targets transgender individuals, whether that is a quasi, whether that's intermediate scrutiny or strict scrutiny. A policy that could pass strict scrutiny could pass strict scrutiny and could stand. As long as a policy comports with constitutional principles and does not subject individuals to discrimination based on their immutable characteristics or their belonging to a suspect classification, and as long as the policy meets the tailoring that is required underneath the constitutional analysis for equal protection, then it could stand. Okay. Thank you for your argument. Thank you, Your Honors. All right. You have five minutes to rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honors. Three quick points. First, Judge Clifton, you and Judge Callahan both asked my friends on the other side whether there was any distinction between this case and Trump v. Hawaii, and they did not give a compelling answer, Your Honor. I think this case is actually on all fours with Trump v. Hawaii. In that case, the plaintiffs there repeatedly said that, oh, this is just a religious gerrymander to capture actual religious discrimination. Here, plaintiffs are arguing this is just a gerrymander based on gender dysphoria and gender transition to capture transgender status. The only difference that plaintiffs have posited between this case and Trump v. Hawaii is that they say this policy is not neutral. But I'd have three responses to that, Your Honor. First, it is as neutral as the Carter policy the district court ordered us to maintain. That policy likewise turned on gender dysphoria and gender transition and required individuals who were transgender that did not suffer from this particular medical condition to serve consistent with the standards of their biological sex. Well, it's sort of hard. You know, it could be that a lot of times, you know, is that code for is really if is transgender dysphoria, I guess, really just another way of discriminating against transgenders. That's what I think they're saying. You're just calling it something else, but it's really the same thing. Yes, Your Honor. That's what they are arguing. And we think it's similar to the same argument in Hawaii where they were saying this is just talking majority Muslim nations versus Muslims themselves. But particularly, Your Honor, that rests on a factually erroneous premise. And I would point you to page three in our reply brief that goes through and cites all of the various authorities ranging from the American Psychological Association to the American Medical Association to plaintiff's own briefing before we dropped the new policy that all say that gender dysphoria only affects a subset of 
transgender individuals, and only a subset of those individuals choose to go undergo gender transition. And on that point, Your Honor, I would like to point you to page 359 in the ER, which is a — it's in the RAND report. It discusses a survey where it says 18 percent of transgender individuals never plan to undergo gender transition in their lives. Both the district court and plaintiffs today are conflating transgender with transition. Finally, Your Honor, turning to the biological sex point, the requirement that one serves in and meets the standards associated with his or her biological sex is a neutral standard, regardless of what the plaintiffs say. We would analogize this to the headgear rule in Goldman v. But what is your biological sex after you've transitioned? Your Honor, the military uses the same definition of biological sex in the RAND report, which is based on both your anatomy and your chromosomes and those — so it's the same definition that's been given through. So can you ever change your biological sex? In — according — using the military's definition, which relies on RAND's definition, no, that's not the case. But I would just analogize the situation, Your Honor, to the decision in Goldman. In that case, the rule there was no headgear could be worn indoors by service members. That obviously had a significant effect on Orthodox Jewish men who were serving because they could not wear their yarmulkes. But plaintiffs themselves have repeatedly said that is a facially neutral rule. The Supreme Court treated it as a facially neutral rule. And the same is true here. The fact that you are required to serve and meet the standards associated with your biological sex is a facially neutral rule. The second point I'd like to make, Your Honor, and this just comes back to your point, Judge Fischer, when you asked about irreparable injury, I would just encourage you to look at the Supreme Court's decision in Winter, which stressed that not only do military decisions on substantive matters get deference, but also their assessments of the irreparable injury to the military themselves. And the Supreme Court gave significant deference to those assessments in that case. Finally, Your Honors, I would like to turn to something that my friends on the other side and I actually do agree about, and that is the fact that we think this Court is fully poised and can rule on the merits of this particular policy. We think that it's fully briefed. This Court does not need to send it back to the district court to address any particular issues anymore. The reasoning has been set forth in our briefing, and we think it's more than sufficient to stand on the record as it is. Well, okay. So you've got a trial coming up, and I'm hearing different sides on certain — there's going to be testimony that's presented. So — and possibly there's some factual disputes as to certain things, what one report says, what another report says, what was relied on, because that's a whole discovery thing, too. So if you were to prevail here, that doesn't mean you automatically win at the trial, right? No, Your Honor. That's a good point. I would stress that what we are seeking here — and I'll let my co-counsel address the discovery issues — but what we are seeking here in this particular appeal is to vacate the preliminary injunction. And the fact that the district court wants to conduct further factual proceedings doesn't give that particular court license to enjoin the military from maintaining a policy until the district court is convinced that that particular policy withstands deference. And I just want to stress, Your Honor, military deference is a rule of decision. It's not a factual finding. I would analogize it to Chevron deference. A plaintiff couldn't come into this court challenging an agency regulation and say, well, Your Honor, we don't think this 
regulation should get Chevron deference because we have concerns about the process the agency went through to develop this regulation. So we need discovery. And we think, in the meantime, you should issue a nationwide injunction prohibiting the implementation of this particular regulation while we conduct further discovery. Thank you. I guess that concludes this case. I guess we go to the next case then. Okay. I know that we're not done. Okay. So that matter will stand submitted. And now we will call the matter of Donald Trump versus United States District Court for Western District of Seattle and Brian Karnofsky, case number 18-72159. Thank you very much, Your Honor. Mark Freeman for the government. If the court permits, I'd like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal. Okay. I'm here on the government's petition for a writ of mandamus. Our mandamus petition addresses the district court's July 27 discovery. Can I ask you, you filed a petition for cert on this, right? We filed a petition for a stay or in the alternative cert before judgment, but we withdrew that after this court acted on our stay motion. Okay. So that doesn't exist anymore? All right. There's nothing pending in the Supreme Court at the moment. The petition for a writ of mandamus addresses the July 27 discovery order. That order warrants an exercise of this court's mandamus jurisdiction for two reasons. First, it requires the President of the United States to prepare and submit a detailed privilege log concerning executive privilege in the same manner that any other defendant in any other case would have to submit a privilege log for regular privileges. The Supreme Court's decision in the Cheney case makes very clear that that's inappropriate and the district court was wrong to disregard that. Well, you seem to read Cheney to say that they're not entitled to any discovery. It seems that you've kind of taken an extreme position on that. No, Your Honor, and thank you. Let me be very clear about that. We are not here on mandamus asking the court to say that plaintiffs are never entitled to any discovery. We do think it's significant that the Supreme Court has never ordered discovery from the President in a civil case arising under the President's official responsibilities. You've got U.S. v. Nixon, which is a criminal case. You've got Clinton v. Jones, which is unofficial conduct. But never in the history of our republic, to my knowledge, has a court ordered the President of the United States to respond to interrogatories in a civil case. But we're not asking the court here to say that. All we're asking the court to say is the district court in this case ordered the President to prepare a privilege log, which is exactly what the Supreme Court in Cheney said the district court there could not do. Recall that the holding of the Supreme Court, excuse me, the holding of the D.C. Circuit in the Cheney case was, sure, we understand that the plaintiff's discovery requests there were fairly overbroad, but before the President may assert any constitutional remedy and before the court may invite the, obtain the help of the courts of appeals through mandamus, the Vice President was required to assert particularized discovery objections and particularized privilege objections. And what the Supreme Court said was, no, the requirement on the Vice President there to assert a particularized, you know, create a particularized privilege log in the same manner as any other defendant was itself an intrusion on the confidentiality of the executive branch. And this, the district court in this case 
double down on that error. Cheney involved the vice president. This is discovery directly to the president. The discovery that plaintiffs have sought in this case is astonishing in its breadth. They asked for copies of all drafts of presidential executive orders, copies of the communications between the president and his senior most advisors and the secretary of defense. I mean, these are the sorts of discovery requests that are, of course, subject to executive privilege claims. And to invite, to require the president to do line by line, to quote the district court, specific non-boilerplate document by document privilege objections invites exactly the sort of error that the Supreme Court said in Cheney courts ought not countenance at that warrant and exercise of mandamus jurisdiction. Well, okay. It would seem, all right, so you're not saying that Cheney says you don't have to do anything. Correct. But what do you have to do? What are you asking for? Because obviously I think there's got, it would seem if you have a trial coming up and that whether the new, the 2018 is in fact different and if it was based on, what it was based on to come to those conclusions, that's going to depend on what deference it might get. So what are, you know, they can ask for anything, but what. Right. So I think what Cheney stands for is the proposition that discovery from the White House has to be the last resort, not the first. So here the plaintiff should exhaust their efforts to obtain discovery on the critical questions. And I take them in all, you know, sincerity to say. But I guess what you're saying here is like we're not going to do, we don't want to do anything now. You have to, if you can't find, you're not giving me a lot to work with here. Well, sure. Let me give you something very concrete to work with. We have offered the plaintiffs in this case, in our initial disclosures, which are in the district court record at, I think it's docket number 249, Exhibit 1, the opportunity to depose the chair of the panel of experts. That's the panel that produced the recommendation that went to Secretary Mattis that provided the basis for the Secretary's proposal to the President. That's Tony Curta. He is also, incidentally, the person who certified the correctness and completeness of the administrative record in this case. We have said, depose him. Now, plaintiffs have refused to take us up on that opportunity. Instead, what they've said is, we want to get discovery from the President. We want to blow through the entire deliberative process privilege without any showing of particularized need. But that's not how this is supposed to work. If plaintiffs claim, and I take them sincerely on this, is that they think there was some taint, that the 2018 policy, notwithstanding that they have the entire, not only the panel of experts report, they have the entire 3,000-page administrative record underlying it, including the minutes of all 13 of the meetings of the panel of experts, and they have an additional 30,000 documents outside of the administrative record, and they've deposed multiple Department of Defense officials. If their claim is, even though true, they've not seen it. You can't know what you don't know. Well, right. Okay. So there's that. That is absolutely right, Your Honor. But at some point, the lack of evidence of animus is the indication that there isn't animus, and there has to be a point where they stop. But at the minimum, before you get discovery from the White House, before you blow through the deliberative process privilege, they should do something like take us up on our invitation to depose Tony Curta, the head of the panel of experts, and say, all right, look, Secretary Mattis said to the President that he charged your group with coming up with an independent recommendation. Was your decision independent? I suspect the reason they don't want to ask him that question is that they don't want the answer. 
But if they come, if they can't come in and say, we're entitled to unprecedented discovery from the White House and a form of deliberative process analysis that has... I suspect the district court was irritated with you because they ask you to turn all this over within 10 days. And, you know, I was a trial judge, and it's like when everyone goes to their corners and everyone, they want a million things, you don't want to give anything, then the court's in this position of having to break this, you know, break the logger jam. So it's... And I'm sympathetic to that concern, Your Honor. And it seems that everyone's... I see extreme positions being taken. Well, on that point, let me suggest that the court looks at the briefing on the motion to compel that underlies the July 27 order. This is the briefing with respect to plaintiff's motion to compel the production of all deliberative documents in the government, all 20,000 plus. In that briefing, plaintiffs were very candid, as were we, that we, the government, went to them and said, okay, I understand you want some deliberative information. Identify for us the particularized documents or the categories of documents that you think you need to prove your claim. And the plaintiffs, as they admit in their briefing, said, no, we don't think we have to do that. We want all of it without differentiation and without a need to separate or do separate balancing. And that's the question that got put to the district court. We agree, and we are asking this court as a matter of mandamus, to direct the district court to deny that motion to compel. And then if the plaintiffs want to come forward and say, we have particularized things that we think we can make out the showing for deliberative process, then we'll have that discussion. We think they're entitled to have that discussion, but not all 30,000 or 20,000 documents in the Department of Defense. I mean, as an example, the administrative record in this case, which, again, they have, 3,000-plus page administrative record, has some redactions in it for deliberative process among the members of the panel of experts. Now, if the plaintiffs came to us and they said, we think there, say, the day after a transgender service... It just sort of seems like you're asking us to be discovery referees. No, Your Honor. What we're asking, the two errors we're asking for mandamus on are, one, ordering the White House to produce a privilege law, which Cheney says you just can't do, and two, ordering en masse the discovery of all Department of Defense deliberative documents without any form of particularized balancing. If the district court had said, I'm going to do the factors that the Ninth Circuit says I have to, I'm going to say, require them to come forward with a showing of need, and I'm going to hear the government say why there's an interest in confidentiality, and I rule one way or another, we wouldn't be here. But no court, to my knowledge, no court of appeals, to my knowledge, has allowed a plaintiff to say, we're alleging intent, and therefore we get all 30,000 deliberative documents in the Department of Defense without any particularized showing of need. I mean, the effect of that order is to treat as identical, on the one hand, the redactions in the administrative record, and on the other hand, the President's, the Secretary of Defense's draft letter to the President that's set forth in the Easton Declaration attached to our petition. Those two things are clearly not the same for purposes of the deliberative process privilege. And the district court, in an order basically a page long, or an analysis basically a page long, treated them as the same, and we think that's inconsistent with the nature of the privilege itself. That's why we're here on mandamus. Again, we are not asking you to hold that they're not entitled to discovery, even though... I'm not remembering how much you said you want to reserve for rebuttal. Oh, I was going to reserve three minutes, Your Honor. Oh, okay. Thank you. We're not asking the court to hold they're not entitled to discovery at all, even though, in our view, 
this the march twenty eighteen policy is an agency decision it's a decision of the secretary of defense if they are grieved by that that ought to be adjudicated on the administrative record but if the district court here said they're entitled to discovery we're we're prepared to engage with that what they can't do is is commit these two errors one discovery from the white house which cheney says is the ought to be the last resort rather than the first and two on mass discovery of all deliberative process documents thank you and i reserve the balance of my time okay thank you I think it's important to remember what we're here on, on this, is a petition for mandamus. They are asking you to be a discovery referee. And I know my able uh, uh, counsel and their adversary hasn't been participating in those trial proceedings, but some of the representations that he made bear absolutely no relationship to the reality of what's happened with discovery. Um, that's why we have district court judges. You know, Judge Peckman, she's living, lived this case. Um, well, it, and yeah, but it seems, but you know, I can appreciate that turning over all of the what you asked for in ten days. I mean, well, we're, we're, we're not here on the ten days. Well, I when, know, when but that's the way it originally that, started. So I, I kind of see both sides being well, when, extreme down in the district court, and then up here when we're looking right at you, that everyone's so much more reasonable. We're not asking for all of that, or oh no, we're not saying you can't have something when everyone was saying that before. When they finally raised the 10-day issue, she promptly revised her order to address that. What we're talking about here are two... Revise it before we did something? I'm sorry? Did she revise it before we did something? Yes, uh, she did, because you said we're going to let the district court rule on this motion to stay, and then they had to take their complaint to her, which you think would be the first place you'd take it, and she said, okay, well, we'll stay. Uh, your compliance with the discovery order until your petition for mandamus is decided. But back to mandamus. We are talking about two highly fact-bound discovery decisions. I'm not sure that was really a concession. I mean, uh, it was pretty clear that mandamus by that time had been scheduled in front of us. So, Well, but they had never gone back to her and said, you know what, 10 days isn't enough. They came to this court, they filed mandamus, and that was the first time that that issue was in front of her. So all I'm saying is that the 10-day issue is really not relevant to what's before this court. There are two highly fact-bound discovery decisions. And the first, let's be clear, um, their petition talks about weighty separation of power issues on the presidential communications issue, but as the argument today made clear, all that's currently before the court and all the district court has ordered at this point is that their counsel supplement their existing privilege log to satisfy the basic requirements of Federal Rule 26b-5 and uh, to provide the information that's necessary to assess whether the uh, pr- uh, privilege even applies. This is not remotely a case that calls for the extraordinary in- intervention of mandamus. But in any event, uh, that decision is not clearly erroneous, let alone so clearly is erroneous that it would provide grounds for mandamus. The controlling case, this is on the executive privilege issue, is Nixon. And there the Supreme Court found uh, that the appropriate way the procedure is for the president to invoke the privilege, 
When he or she does, the privilege presumptively applies, and then the burden shifts to the defendants to show a sufficient need to overcome the privilege. Well, how many documents did you ask for? I'm sorry? How many documents did you ask for? Well, we don't know. Apparently, they've withheld every single document. But how many did you ask for? What did you ask for? Well, when you ask, you don't know. They've identified 9,000 documents that are responsive to our request, which, again, the district court has supervised and said correctly are targeted to get at this core issue of whether there was animus, what were the real reasons for this ban, what was the involvement of the president after the initial ban was issued, all these things that go into that factual inquiry that's required for a heightened scrutiny analysis case. Do you think a president should have to do the same type of privilege law that, like, a corporation should have to do? Yes, and there's no court anywhere that has ever held that there's some special rule that applies in the case of executive privilege. It's a simple thing for lawyers to prepare privilege logs. And it's absolutely essential that those logs exist so that the privilege can be assessed. Without logs, what they're really saying here is there would be no check on invocation of the executive privilege, because you would never have the information of court or parties to determine if the privilege is properly invoked. So we serve targeted requests. They've said, they've told us we've identified 9,000 responsive documents, and they've withheld every single one of them. Now, they talk about Cheney, but as we point out in our brief, Cheney didn't purport to overrule Nixon or in Ray Seald's case that says the proper approach is to invoke the privilege. It was a very fact-specific issue or a one-off case there where there was an underlying separation of powers issue we don't have here because the statute itself there was a congressional intrusion on the executive branch because it required disclosure of who participated in decision-making. We don't have that here. We don't have the overbroad claim of discovery that would have provided all of the relief they claimed they would be entitled to if they won on the merits as part of discovery. Cheney didn't purport to overrule Nixon or in Ray Seald's case. It didn't purport to establish a rule that would apply to other cases. So the notion that somehow executive privilege shields them from even providing a log so that their privilege claims can be assessed by the district court finds no support in any case. But there's an even if here, too, that even if this three-part standard that they say should apply, which they don't cite a single case, you can read Cheney until the cows come home. There is no reference to this three-part test. It's something they made out of whole cloth. But if, in fact, one were to apply that test here, as Judge Peckman found, we satisfy each of the requirements. First, there's a particularized need for an adequate log. Without it, neither the court nor plaintiffs can assess whether the privilege has been properly invoked. Second, the district court tailored the required supplementation to the specific need here, assessing whether the privilege has been appropriately addressed. Not cough up the privilege documents themselves, just provide a log. And then third, there are... But one of the things, like, since the 2017 memorandum was replaced by the 2018 report, does that render irrelevant the question of whether the president consulted with his generals prior to his 2017 
tweets? No, it doesn't, because we're not here on summary judgment, and we don't agree that this court should find ultimately whether this is a new or old policy. This is an appeal from a preliminary injunction. That's a hotly contested issue. And we believe, and certainly what the government has publicly disclosed, shows that they're one and the same, that this is a progression, it's a timeline from the President's ban. But at a minimum, we should be able to discover and find out what role, if any, did the military play in the initial tweet and the initial memorandum, and what role did the President play and the White House in preparing this anonymous report and preparing the new policy. All that's for discovery, and again, this doesn't come even close to... Well, what if hypothetically we felt that what you requested was completely overbroad and what the court ordered was completely overbroad, and we were to say, well, okay, we're granting it, go back and come up with something. You've got to reduce the scope of your discovery, you've got to be more specific, and... Well, all due respect, you could only do that if you really looked at the request and did the request review that the district court did. If you did that, and I don't believe that that's an appropriate role for the appellate court, I mean, there's all kinds of cases in this and other courts that say appellate courts shouldn't get involved in discovery for that very reason, but if you did, I'm confident you'd come to the same conclusion, and you would find that they have stonewalled the plaintiffs in this case on every single document. As they say at pages 30 to 31 of their petition, and I think an inadvertent concession, that, quote, anything remotely relating to any of the decision-making here, they've wrapped in privilege. A hundred percent of the President's documents they've withheld, not a single document, and 58 percent or 44,000 documents that they've identified as responsive, they've withheld on the deliberative process privilege. So do they have to do a privilege law? What's been produced? There have been about 37 or 30,000 documents, and it's mostly junk. Anything that relates to the decision-making they've withheld. Anything that would tell us what really happened. Your statements are kind of conclusory. What's been produced? The 3,700, you said? No, about 30,000 documents have been produced. We have the report. We don't even, as an example, have the report that was issued by the panel of experts. They withheld all of that, redacted the whole thing on the grounds of deliberative process privilege. The report that you were asking about putting so much emphasis on before, we don't even know who authored that. We know it wasn't a panel of experts. That report was dated January 15th. Somebody, we don't know who, drafted this report. Well, why haven't you, they told someone that you could depose. Why haven't you deposed that person to narrow? Because we don't have any documents at this point to depose anyone on. There have been two or three depositions in other cases, I think three. Counsel made it sound like there have been many. And they invoked the deliberative process privilege in those depositions repeatedly as anything that would go to the core analysis required for a heightened scrutiny analysis. This is, if the court were to sanction what happened here, there would never be an ability to have any type of scrutiny in an equal protection case because what the government could do is prepare a post hoc, post litigation report. That's undisputed, okay? They did it after the original ban, certainly. And they could deny any discovery as to the process, the substance of the deliberations that went into that, and disclose only what they choose to disclose. 
this administrative record they talk about, this wasn't administrative. This wasn't an APA proceeding. That is something that somebody made up after the fact and put together, and I've reviewed it. I can tell you it's sanitized. There's nothing in there that's going to help us or the court address whether this ban or the new, quote, new policy or the old policy, what the real reasons were and who was involved on those. So you would not have any kind of scrutiny, but you would have no check on executive power if their invocations of privileges were sustained here, and that has serious separation of powers issues, as the Nixon court found. And that's why this is so unlike Cheney. For courts to do their job of enforcing the Constitution and, in our context, equal protection, they have to make an assessment. What's the fit between the governmental interests and the government's regulatory or discriminatory policy? How tailored is it? What was the true reason? Was it motivated by animus, as public reports have said, where the president was trying to appeal to some of his base, his religious right base, or the Freedom Caucus? We don't know. But you can't, the courts cannot enforce the Equal Protection Clause in the Bill of Rights without information. And they have stonewalled as to every single document of the president, and 58 percent of the documents they've identified as responsive, and anything remotely, in their words, relating to the decision-making process, the reasons for the bans, and the deliberations for the ban here. Did the Supreme Court look at all of that in the Hawaii case, or did they just look at what ultimately came out of it and said they could decide it based on that? Again, a totally different situation. You had a facially neutral policy, okay, so you didn't have the kind of They didn't say it was facially neutral, but that's not how they argued it. No, no. That's not how they decided they wanted to set it aside, didn't say it was facially neutral. The Supreme Court relied heavily on the fact that it was facially neutral. That's the principal reason they found not only that rational basis review applied, but that it passed rational basis review. The circumstances of the travel ban case are not even remotely like ours, and this is an equal protection case where we have a policy that is discriminatory on its face, where heightened scrutiny clearly applies under decades. And heightened scrutiny, whether it's strict scrutiny or intermediate, it doesn't matter. They concede tacitly it fails. They don't even try to defend it on that basis. Your argument suggests you don't need discovery. You know, the fact that you should win facially doesn't mean you don't need discovery. But if you compare this to the Trump versus Hawaii case, that was a case where, I mean, I'm sort of bemused that, gee, we didn't have to deal with discovery issues. Now, I was at the very beginning, so maybe there were later issues, but were there similar fights in that litigation? You know, I don't know. And I don't know. I know what I've read from the decisions. I was involved in the litigation. I do know that here, where you've got an equal protection case, yes, we need discovery to find out what really happened. We need to prove a case that animus did drive this. We need to establish a violation no matter what level of scrutiny were to apply, even though we believe very firmly that heightened scrutiny does apply, and we should win if you apply that scrutiny to a discriminatory policy. But they still can meet their burden of overcoming that, 
And they're going to rely on this report and say, we have to do this because of unit cohesion and concerns about military readiness. We need to test those. We have a right to test those. We need to have discovery. You know, if you look at this, and one last point, and you kind of pull back and you look at both of these appeals, First of all, in the first one, they're saying abruptly reverse course and let us reimpose a ban that the military itself found was not only not justified but undermined the very interest they're now citing two years ago and which the own service chiefs have said has caused no problems and which we know we're currently litigating the constitutionality of. So if you lift the preliminary injunction in six months or, or nine months after a trial, we might be right back where you have a permanent injunction ordering the military to reinstate the ban that was just lifted. And to do that kind of damage in the short or long term to thousands of transgender persons who would be affected by this ban and to so disrupt the military. On the other hand, they say, but you know what, sustain it because um, uh, we didn't have any, uh, any animus here. This was just really about gender dysphoria, and we have this report, and the report says it's necessary, and we say, well, those are assertions. Where's the evidence? You can't have it. The president, what about his documents? You can't have a single document. In fact, we won't even give you a log to let you assess and and know what the documents are. And as to the uh, uh, deliberative process privilege, 44,000 documents, 58 percent. You're you're over your time, so wrap it up. Yeah, uh, Your Honor, this is not a case for mandamus. Um, Let the district court and the process work like it always does. Don't become a referee of discovery. Um, On an incomplete record, the response to your overtime is not to launch into a new point. (laughs) Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. It's been a long morning and afternoon, and I'll, I'll keep it short. That's why we get paid so much. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way as government counsel. Um, first, it's just untrue that they don't have the panel of experts report. I, I would just point the court to document 249, Exhibit 1. That's the certified index of the administrative record in this case. They have the entire administrative record. They have 30,000 documents in addition to that. But what he said was that what they got as the panel of experts' own draft was so redacted that they can't figure out what might have changed between that panel itself drafting something and what was issued as the final report. So so two things about that. First, actually, the redactions in the the administrative record are are very very small. There are some. Secondly, if plaintiffs had uh, wanted to say, we need to see what's behind those redactions, well, that would be a particularized... Uh, objection, which we could litigate, and they might well win that. Now, we have reasons why we think, and this is set out in the Easton Declaration, why the confidentiality of those, of those proceedings were very important to maintain. But, again, that's the sort of objection we ought to have been made, not give us everything. But the point I wanted to go to is where, where you were, Judge Clifton. There was, in fact, no discovery in the travel ban case. Um, they're not at any stage to which, of which we're aware. And that, I think, points up a more basic question about this case, a more basic concern. Look, this is the sort of claim that gets resolved on summary judgment all the time. It's a purely legal challenge to a policy that plaintiffs have in front of them. I didn't hear my counsel in the prior argument or just now indicate any doubt about whether he thinks his rational basis or heightened scrutiny arguments will succeed. That's why the travel ban argument went off the way it did. And I would note that plaintiffs in this case twice moved 
for summary judgment on their constitutional claims, once in January when we were addressing the presidential, the 2017 memorandum, and again after the new proceeding came out, the new policy in March 2018, they said to the district court, we got all we need. Summary judgment, we win. And it was when the district court. Oh, did they? Well, no. It was because when the district. So maybe they need more. Well, and, Your Honor, on that, what the district, it was when the district court said, no, in my view, the question of the level of deference to be applied to a policy of this kind is a factual question, that suddenly it became, plaintiffs started asking for discovery on that. And I don't blame them having been given that opportunity by the district court. But before the district court said that, which was a surprise to both parties, the government had its legal arguments about what the standard of review is. Plaintiffs had their legal arguments about what the standard of review is. It's normally resolved on that basis. And I guess the last thing that I would say is I think we got to the bottom of it here when we heard plaintiffs' counsel just a few minutes ago say, no, there's no reason to treat the President differently. The President is treated the same for purposes of discovery as any other President of a corporation. Now, that's a remarkable proposition. It is not one the Supreme Court has ever embraced. They cannot point to, and their papers are devoid of, any citation to any case, let alone a court of appeals case or Supreme Court case, allowing anything like the kind of discovery that the district court in this case did. Again, if they have particularized objections based on the showing of need that this Court's cases require for deliberative documents, let's have that discussion. That's we wouldn't be here on mandamus if the district court had done that. But the orders that the district court issued in this case are vastly overbroad and warrant an exercise of this Court's mandamus jurisdiction. Assuming, and this is a big assumption, but for a practical reason I want you to make the assumption, assume that we accept the proposition that you've argued, that the district court's orders are overbroad, what are we supposed to do about it? I mean, the reason we became court of appeals judges is we didn't want to be discovery masters. So assuming that we're not going to do that, what do we do? I would say the following specific things. First, I would urge the Court to issue a writ of mandamus directing the district court to grant the government's motion for a protective order with respect to the President and deny plaintiff's motion to compel with respect to all deliberative documents. Now, to be clear, I mean deny the specific motions they filed. That is, the motion that said we're entitled to all deliberative documents without regard to a particularized showing because that's, in their view, what they were entitled to. And then you could say, district court, you may entertain requests for further documents, but we ask you to be careful of the following principles with respect to the White House, those laid out in Cheney, and with respect to the deliberative process, the principle that the deliberative process privilege requires a showing of particularized need and a genuine balancing of the government's interest in confidentiality. What mid-level Department of Defense person under the district court's rationale here is ever going to offer an opinion that's at all controversial on a question of this public's import if it's going to be held up as the reason why the government is bigoted for either having accepted or not accepted that proposal? The point of the deliberative process privilege is to enable better decision-making. And the irony is it is precisely in cases, big cases like this one, that that privilege has its most important attachment. And that's why the district court erred, and we would ask this court to tell the district court to respect those principles going forward. Thank you. All right. This matter stands submitted, and this court will be in recess until tomorrow at 930. Thank you to both counsel. All rise.